Well, hey, good morning, church. Good morning. Did you have a good Christmas? That's awesome. Well, hey, you never really hear anybody say no to that question, though, do you? The reality is that some of you haven't gotten to celebrate yet or might not get to celebrate. And I just want to say I am so painfully aware at the amount of suffering that happens this time of year as people grieve and miss loved ones, some for the first time this year, or for people who are separated from their families or estranged from their families or for people who don't have families. Grief and loneliness is a real thing right now. A season that should be filled with joy and laughter is just filled with heartache. It just wasn't what you thought it would be. It wasn't what you expected. So to those of you, when everyone else is cheering that they've had a good Christmas, you're painfully reminded of the difficulty of your current situation, I just want to wish you a very Merry Christmas from all of us at Zion. We are with you. We are with you. We are with you. And we look forward to the never-ending, glorious celebration of our Savior that we have in store for us for all of eternity. Our mourning will certainly be turned to gladness then. My name is Jennifer Colby. For those of you who don't know me, I'm one of the directors here at Zion. Uh, it kind of sucked to like have to start a message that way. So we're going we're gonna to completely detour and distract ourselves from that and take a quick moment to play Zion hashtag time, Jimmy Fallon style. Earlier in the week, I asked the Zion staff to hashtag ruin a Christmas song with just one word. But y'all, nobody replied to me. We have the most creative and funny staff at Zion, and nobody said anything. It was just complete silence. And this came after uh, we had our, our staff Christmas party, and I got booed for stealing someone's Christmas gift as per the rules of the game. So we're having a week here, okay? So instead of Zion replies, here, here are actual replies from the Jimmy Fallon show. I did technically change the hashtag a little bit, so I'm sorry if you've already seen it. Hashtag ruin a Christmas song with just one word. Santa baby shark, Frosty the yellow snowman. It's the most, wow, you two still aren't engaged time of the year, which is, a, which is more than one word, but totally worth it. Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer hunter. And my personal favorite, Feliz Navidad bod. Okay, that literally had nothing to do with today's message. I just wanted to like start us off on a funny note and get us going for the morning. So there you have it, ruined Christmas songs. Last Friday, Christmas Eve, today and next Sunday, we are detouring from our Passport to Galatia series to talk about detours. On Friday, Christmas Eve, which by the way, we had almost 1,200 people in attendance. Yes, that's we're celebrating. With one service alone being a record-breaking service with 481 people. If you were at that service, you know how full it was in here. It was awesome. So we keep saying God is doing something, and I just think that was really cool evidence of that. But on Friday, Pastor Jason talked about the detour to Bethlehem and how that God brought salvation to the world, the way that he fulfilled his promises and prophecies of a coming Messiah. They were all completely unexpected, completely unusual, and in some cases, completely unbelievable. Jesus, the Son of God, coming completely humbled and vulnerable as a human baby, was not on anybody's radar. It was a completely different direction than anyone thought it would be. It was a detour. And today we're going to pick up right where the Christmas morning birth of Jesus story ends. We're going to find ourselves smack dab in the middle of yet another detour. And isn't it just like our God to do exactly what we don't think he will do? 
to take us places we don't want to go, to take us places that don't make sense to us for reasons that don't make sense to us. I want you to keep in mind that this is a two-part message. Today, we're going to look at what God told Joseph to do, Joseph being Jesus' adopted father. And then next week, we're going to connect that to what God is telling us to do. We're going to learn from Joseph today in hopes that our faith will be increased and our hearts prepared for next week. And one last thing, it's not lost on me that between today and next Sunday, we will enter a new year. I'm not unaware of the fact that many of us will have New Year's resolutions. Here's my request, though. Wait. Just wait. Wait until next Sunday. Because here's the thing. If we're going to be resolute about anything, if we're going to be determined and unwavering about anything, let it be about us following the Lord, even if that means he takes us on a detour, even if that means the path he has us on is not the path we thought we'd be on, even if it means that things are so unexpected, so bleak, that all we can think about is the helpless baby of the Christmas story. A place where we can't even get our minds to focus on the cross, let alone the empty tomb. A detour in life can lead us in a place where all we see is the hopelessness and the helplessness of our current situation. Our text today is found in Matthew chapter 2, verse, uh, starting in verse 13. And this particular narrative is only found in the Gospel of Matthew, meaning it's not mentioned in Mark, Luke, or John. The story opens with the Magi leaving Bethlehem after they've visited baby Jesus and offered him their gifts. Scholars estimate that this is about a year at this time. And so just imagine with me for a moment. The text doesn't say this. This is definitely my modernized version of this. But just imagine with me for a moment. Jesus is no longer a newborn, so they've either had a year of sleep-derived nights, or maybe sleep is starting to return to a more normal pace. Jesus might be walking at this point. Certainly, he's crawling, and so it's this constant game of, like, picking up the floor and taking things out of his mouth. The guests have all left after a year. Y'all, I like to host, and that would be torture. Mary can finally, like, not do her hair for the first time and, like, wear pajamas all day long if she wants. The meal trains are done. The hoopla about Jesus' birth is subsiding and things are starting to feel, you know, normal for the first time in a year. Mary and Joseph are settling into this new life as newlyweds and as first-time parents. Before we go on, I want to share a quick little tidbit about Joseph from the chapter prior to this in chapter 1. Here, Matthew calls Joseph a righteous man. Some other translations say that he was just or faithful to the law. And this is important because what it means is that Joseph was following the Lord, that his life was an active reflection of his current faith, of his current relationship with God. This wasn't a past tense kind of thing. So when we find Joseph Joseph in Matthew 2, he is actively following the Lord right then. He has a current, fruitful relationship with God right in these moments. And so verse 13, when they had gone, that is the Magi, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. The first point I want to make to you out of this verse is that God spoke then and God is still speaking now. In fact, I just want to take a moment to list some of the ways that the Holy Spirit communicates to us even today. The Holy Spirit speaks through circumstances. For example, when Jonah ignored and then disobeyed and was running away from God, the first thing that happened is that he got on a boat and a huge storm came up. 
It threatens to tear the boat apart. The non-believing, the non-Christian sailors on that boat literally asked him, what have you done to anger God? It was clear to even the non-believing sailors and actually to Jonah, to, to Jonah himself that God's storm was, because, it was a result of his sin and God was trying to speak to him. Secondly, the Holy Spirit th- speaks through other people. There are so many examples of this in Scripture. God sent Ananias to Paul to heal him. God sent Abigail to David to warn him. God sent prophet upon prophet so that people would repent and return to him. And God sent Jesus to be the word made flesh. Jesus is the embodiment of God's word. God uses people, sometimes non-Christians, to speak to us. And thirdly, the Holy Spirit speaks through natural manifestations. When he spoke in John 12, people thought it was thunder. And he speaks through supernatural manifestations. He spoke through a burning bush to Moses and a fleece to Gideon and a donkey to Balaam. Fourthly, the Holy Spirit speaks through dreams and visions like he did to Joseph in this text. But he also spoke in dreams to visions to the Old Testament Joseph, to Solomon, to Jacob, and to Peter. But of all the ways that God speaks to us today, his word, this book, is still the primary, the most reliable, the most common, the clearest, the loudest. God's word is dependable and trustworthy and consistent and true. Now, I'm not saying that all the other ways that God speaks to us, and by the way, I did not give you an extensive list. I'm not saying that those aren't real. I'm just saying that you have to discern whether they are from the Lord. There's some testing required on the part of the believer. In fact, as often as we see God speaking, we see other examples in Scripture where it says, that message wasn't from the Lord. We are warned of false teachers who can lead us astray, and so we have to discern that. We have to distinguish between the two. But in contrast, God's word is alive and active and useful. Jesus himself says that heaven and earth will fade away, but my word shall never pass away. And so it begs the question, do you love this word? Not do you know it. This isn't about intelligence. Do you love it? Do you value it? Does it have supreme authority in your life? And I'm going to take those questions right back to myself. Do I love it? Do I recognize the incredible value it has? Do I give it the authority it deserves in my own life? Because if I'm honest, and I don't think I'm alone in this, sometimes I'm bored by it, confused by it, annoyed by it. Sometimes I thought I'd ignore what it says to do, and worse, sometimes I don't read it at all. Am I the only one? Because it is so easy for me to go about my life without picking up this book and letting God speak to me through it, letting God reveal himself to me through it, letting God transform my heart and my life through it. We don't need more knowledge. This isn't about if you know it. This is about do you love it? Is it bringing transformation in your life? I recently read a book called Radical by uh, David Platt. The subtitle of this book, Taking Back Your Faith from the American Dream, really got my attention. And the book has probably wrecked me for life, and and just one area where it challenged me was in this issue of Scripture. And although I still think it's wise for new believers to pick up God's Word, start in the Gospels, read it slowly, and and although I still think there's a place uh, for that in the life of any believer, I've come to this place in my current stage of faith, my current life, You know, I've been loving Jesus a long time. I've come to this place where I need to feast on God's word. I can't have snacky little devotionals anymore. Feasting isn't about quantity. It's about nourishment. 
Feasting allows us to be filled. And I want to be filled with this word. I want to be so filled that it pours out of me, that it brings God's kingdom to the world around me because the world desperately needs Jesus. And I'm not just talking about non-believers. I desperately need Jesus. My husband desperately needs Jesus. My children, my coworkers. Y'all, I work at a church and my coworkers still desperately need Jesus. God's word is an invitation to meet him. This isn't just a love letter from him to me. This isn't just good life advice. This is the inspired word of God. What a gift. And there are some people in this world who do not have access to it, and yet I carry mine around in my back pocket at all times. What an opportunity to hear from God. This word brings supernatural revelation from the Holy Spirit who who reminds us of who God is, of who he says we are, and what he wants us to do with the few short years we have on this earth. And I've come to this place in my beliefs where if I feast, if I just devour these words, if I take in as much as I can with the goal of knowing and loving God, that even if I don't understand it, even if I'm bored by it, God's word will do something in my life. It will produce something. It will produce something good in me. I believe that to be true. There is a spiritual nourishment provided by God's word that will sustain us. And not just for today, but for our life. Does God's word nourish you? Is it sustenance? Are you seeing God's word as an opportunity to be in God's presence? That the God of the universe has something to say to you. Are you feasting on it? Are you getting as much as you absolutely can? Or are you just snacking? Do you love this word? Because this word became flesh in the person of Jesus. And part of me loving Jesus means that I want to know him more and more. I want to seek him. I want to seek after him with all of my being. What about you? Is that also true of you? And and by the way, I don't want you to feel shame. That is, I don't want you to feel like you're not good enough if you're not reading your Bible or if you don't understand it. That's not my goal or my heart. I just don't want you to miss the fulfillment and the joy and the power that comes from God's living word. I am jealous for you to know it because through it you will know God. Joseph was able to hear from God because he was daily seeking God. But what about his dream? How did Joseph know that this dream, this dream in particular to get up in the middle of the night and go to Egypt, was in fact from God? That this really was a God-ordained message from the Lord. How did he discern the truth of that message? Well, I believe the first reason is God had spoken to him in a dream before. In Matthew chapter 1, an angel appeared to him in a dream to announce the upcoming arrival of Jesus, which occurred as it was described. And because God had spoken in a dream once before, I believe Joseph had tuned his ears to hear from the Lord, at least in this capacity. And I think that's just such a great reminder that we need to give God space to speak to us. We need to be attentive and listening for him. And guess what? Part of active listening means that sometimes we have to shut up ourselves. That sometimes we need to be quiet so that we can focus on actively hearing God. And secondly, Joseph can know that this second dream is actually from God because the message is confirmed to be true. I'm skipping ahead a few verses, but uh, in just a few short verses, we're going to see that Herod does actually order the killing of uh, the boys in Bethlehem. And so the threat to Jesus' life was real. 
God does not lie, and he does not go against his word. I think it's comical, although probably not to Joseph, that the angel said, get up, go to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you. Basically, this is the equivalent of go and wait, which have you ever received that from the Lord before? Ever been on that kind of detour before? Go and wait. It is so frustrating. And we're not going to get into it, but I just want you to hold on to that little nugget for next week. Sometimes we are told to go and wait. I'm continuing on in verse 14 now. So he, that is Joseph, took the child and mother during the night and left for Egypt. Side note, uh, I just want to point out to you real quick that for the Israelites, Egypt was actually a place of oppression. And so I think it's pretty cool that the first place that Jesus is sent to is to a place of oppression. Baby Jesus is being set up already to be the Messiah. Verse 15 continues that they stayed there until the death of Herod, and so fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now consider, with the, consider this with me for a moment. Obedience is hearing God and doing what he says. In fact, the Hebrew meaning for the word hear also means do. It's a both and type of thing. When we, when we hear in scripture, when we see in scripture, hear, O Israel, what it means is do, O Israel. It's like with my kids. If I tell them to clean your room, I don't want them to just hear me say clean your room. I actually want them to clean their room. <laughs> I, love, I love all the dads in here. Amen. And so when the angel asked Joseph to wake up, get out of bed, wake up his wife, which could be a straight-up death trap, pack your things, bundle the baby, head out in the middle of the night and travel some 300 miles to Egypt, Joseph not only hears, he does it. He immediately obeys God. Joseph had about a million excuses to not do what he was asked to do. I'm sleeping. It's cold. My wife will kill me. Angel, have you ever traveled with a baby before? It is the middle of the night. Can't this wait until morning? But for Joseph, the consequence from disobeying God was worse, far more costly, far more detrimental than all the risks and unknowns and dangers combined. And, and by the way, the risks and the unknowns from the detours could have cost him his life. Yet going, even if it meant dying, was still a better option than disobeying God. Even with all the ways this didn't make sense to Joseph, or all the ways he didn't know how it would work out, even with all of those, following the Lord was still a sure, better path. It wasn't just that his son's life was in danger from Herod. Disobeying God meant that Joseph would no longer be in right relationship with God. And that far outweighed any of the obstacles or excuses that he might have had. Following God into the unknown on a detour is still wiser, still sure, still better than disobeying him. Not safer. And actually it could be more dangerous. God doesn't promise our safety, but he does promise to be with us. And that is why it is always better to follow him. If we truly want to hear God speak, then we better be ready and willing to do what he says. I want to point out something about Joseph's immediate obedience to the Lord. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 24, after the angel appears to him in the first dream, scripture says, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. Joseph had a track record of obeying God. He already knew 
the blessing that comes from following God. The blessing from that first dream is that he got to be the parent to the son of God. Joseph had already experienced God's favor and approval from obeying. And so it's not just that the risks of obeying outweighed the risks of disobeying. It's that the rewards from obedience were worth it. Being in right relationship with God alone is worth it. It is benefit enough. Even with all the losses, Joseph may have experienced the benefit was still worth it. Aside from being in right relationship with God, here are some other benefits of obedience. Obedience is necessary in worship. It secures blessings. It brings spiritual insights. It helps us to work out our salvation, and it shows our faith to the world. And as wonderful as those are, here are some, things, some other things about benefits. They might not be obvious. They might not be what you want them to be. You might not ever get to realize them as a benefit. They, in those detouring moments of wholeheartedly following God, may actually feel like losses. And this is why we have to decide today that if we're going to gain, if we don't gain anything from following Jesus, if we lose from following Jesus, is it still worth it? If we lose everything to follow Jesus, is it still worth it to do so? I hope for my life it is. I hope for my life it is. And I just want to say it's not that God stops loving us if we disobey him. If my kids disobey me, I don't stop loving them. I'm not happy with them. I don't give them the desires of their heart, but I don't stop loving them. God does not stop loving us just because we disobey, but we do lose the benefit of being in right relationship with him. And I'm going to add one more thing, and y'all, it's pretty significant. It about blows my mind that our God is so gracious to allow this to happen. Point number two for the day, our obedience to God fulfills God's purposes and brings God's kingdom to the world. The fact that Joseph obeyed the Lord and left for Egypt fulfilled God's prophecy that he gave to the prophet Hosea that his son would be called out of Egypt. Joseph's single act of obedience fulfilled the prophecy that baby Jesus himself couldn't have made happen on his own. And this fact today might be the sole justification for someone's faith today. Even for me, one of the most convincing arguments for the case of Jesus is that there were prophecies hundreds of years before his birth in which he had no control over. He couldn't make them happen as a human baby. He didn't get to choose where he was born, and he didn't get to choose that his dad relocated him to Egypt. And so Joseph's obedience fulfilled God's plans. And even to this day, is still bringing God's kingdom to the world. And you guys, he was told to go and wait. He wasn't given a plan B. He didn't have a backup plan. We like our backup plans. He didn't have one. He wasn't given the next thing after that. He was told to go and wait. One of the speakers at the Right Now Media Conference we attended, Pastor Choco, said this, Understanding can wait. Obedience cannot. Understanding can wait obedience cannot. Joseph just did the one thing he was supposed to do when he was supposed to do it, even without understanding all the reasons why. And I'll confess, I don't do this perfectly myself. Uh, a couple months ago, my husband Mike and I were driving in the Menards parking lot looking for a place to park, and I see a man, and he's walking with a limp. And I've never had this thought before, but I think to myself, I think God might want to heal him. 
And so we're pulling in and I'm arguing with God as to whether or not I'm going to get out and offer to pray for this man, you know, actually obey God. And I'm like going back and forth with God, okay, if I'm supposed to, make it obvious, and we park right next to him. And then I'm like, well, then I'm going to need some sort of excuse to tell Mike as to why I'm not going into the store when Mike offers up. You want to just stay in the car? And so here's the thing. It was obvious to me that I'm supposed to pray for this man. But did I? No, I did not. It could have been a gospel impact moment. And I don't know if God was going to heal his limp. Maybe he was going to heal his marriage instead. Or maybe he just needed prayer in that moment. Maybe he just needed the presence of God in that moment. And God was sending me to use me to speak to that man, and I refused. And actually, I still pray for him. I pray for God to place a believer in his life, maybe even me, who is obedient enough to do what I didn't do the first time. Because here's the thing, because of my stupid excuses and my disobedience, things like, well, I don't want to be the weirdo in the Menards parking lot, you know what I mean? Or maybe he would refuse my prayer. Because of that, I missed a tremendous opportunity to bring the kingdom of God to man that day. And God wanted to use me to fulfill his purpose in that man's life. And I said no. And I don't ever want to miss that opportunity again that if God says to me get up that I get my butt up and I go do you understand what I'm saying our story of Joseph continues on in verse 16 when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the magi he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and younger in accordance with the time he had learned from the magi then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Just a quick note on this in case you're wondering, the murdering of these children was absolutely evil. And although God used this evil to fulfill his purposes, our God does not initiate evil. Scripture says there is no darkness in him. God does, however, allow evil. And although he does utilize it to accomplish his plans, he also restrains it. Bethlehem was a small town. It's estimated that about 20 male children were murdered under Herod's order. And while 20 babies being killed is absolutely devastating, I actually always thought it was more. Don't get me wrong. It is horrific that 20 families lost their child and, and God hated the evil done by Herod. But I do think there was a provision of God, a restraint of evil that prevented the murder numbers from being higher. God limited the amount of evil he allowed. And I don't know about you, but that does comfort me. I do want to talk about this prophecy quote about Rachel weeping for her children that comes from us from the book of Jeremiah chapter 31. But I'm going to skip it for a moment and circle back around to it. So continuing on in verse 19, after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in the place of his father, Herod, uh, side note, Archelaus was a, a mean dude. He actually got kicked out of the Ro by the Roman government because of his brutal treatment of the Jews and Samaritans. And so when Joseph heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in the place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. 
Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. So let's recap what we've learned so far. Because what we see here happen in this third dream is what we see happen after that second dream. They're very uh, similar. God speaks. Joseph hears. He obeys again. This time probably would have been a much more difficult time for him to obey, yet he still did. Joseph and his family goes, and this fulfills yet another one of God's prophecies with one minor distinction. This time, Joseph was afraid. And friends, Fear gets such a bad rap in the Christian world. I'd like to suggest just a a few things um, about fear from this text. Number one, fear is allowed and permissible. It's okay to be fearful sometimes. Number two, fear can actually be a tool for wise living. The derecho that happened a, a week and a half ago, people were scared. But it also caused them to prepare properly. It caused them to heed the warnings from the National Weather Service. That was wise. Likewise, it was a good idea that Joseph skipped Judea. Archelaus was dangerous. Later on, the fear is validated when the angel warned him to avoid the area. And so in this case, Joseph's fear was a good thing. I want to paraphrase an article I read on psychcentral.com about this idea. Fear can be a warning signal that signals that instructs us to tread carefully to avoid something that might be emotionally or physically problematic. Fear tries to help us navigate situations that can be overwhelming, and for good reason. Fear is not always a feeling that needs to be thwarted or transcended. Fear is essential for our survival. And I want to take this idea one step further and say, if we believe God created the body, if we we believe that he created how the body functions, then the positive effects from fear are God-designed. Now, of course, there are negative responses to fear, and it can certainly be crippling for some people. And I, I don't believe God wants that kind of fear or bondage for his people. But in this example with Joseph, it was totally appropriate for him to be afraid. It was how he was designed. So number three, our third point for today, although fear can be an obstacle to obedience, much like it was in my Menards parking lot story, even fear can be used by God to accomplish his plans. Fear, if submitted and surrendered to God, is permissible and wise and even useful in the kingdom of God. So if God is calling you to go and you're afraid to, present your reasons to God. And I'm not saying he's going to change the plan, but he might. But even if he doesn't, you have the promise of his presence, which will strengthen you to press on. Either way, your fear, surrendered to God, You stepping out and doing what he is calling you to do is not an obstacle in fulfilling his his purposes. He can work with it. Let me recap real quick the the main points from Joseph's detour from Bethlehem because I think we're going to need them fresh in our mind before we get on to the next topic. Number one, God spoke then and he is still speaking now. He speaks primarily through his word. Do you love it? Are you allowing it to transform your life? Our obedience to God fulfills God's purposes, God's eternal purposes, and brings God's kingdom to the world. Your obedience, or lack thereof, has eternal consequences. God wants to use you. He desires to bring his kingdom to the world through using people like you and me. Lastly, anything surrendered to God, even fear, can be used by God to accomplish his plans. He does not waste anything that is offered to him. 
earlier I told you that I wanted to come back to the prophecy mentioned in Matthew about Rachel weeping for her children. The prophecy comes from us from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31. In it, God is speaking to his people about their current exiled situation. No doubt a detour for them, I'm sure. And about their future that awaits them. Let me just highlight some of the things God says to the Israelites' words that are also for us today. God says he will be our God and we will be his people. We have a belonging in him. He says that we will find favor even in the midst of the circumstances we find ourselves in. He tells us he will give us rest. He reminds us that he loves us with an everlasting, never-ending kind of love. He says he will rebuild us and restore us. He says that regardless of the situation we find ourselves in, we will dance again. He tells us that we'll produce fruit and actually be able to enjoy it. He says that he will lead us well and we will not stumble. He tells us he will ransom us and redeems us. He says that we'll rejoice and shout for joy. He says that someday there'll be no more sadness, that mourning will be turned to gladness and sorrow will be turned to joy. He says he will comfort us. He desires that we have the abundant life that he intended for us to have. He says that our work, which is our obedience to him, will be rewarded. He says that we do have a hopeful future in him. He tells us that he remembers us, that his heart yearns for us, and that he has great compassion for us. That is what he says to us in just one chapter of this entire book. I want to know him. I want to know what these words mean for my life. I want you to know him. I want you to know what these words mean for your life. David Platt in his book Radical calls Jesus someone worth losing everything for. I think this must have been the view that Joseph had as well. Joseph's mind and heart must have been so available to God that he was able to understand a glimpse just a small glimpse of who God is, his greatness, his goodness, his beauty, his worthiness. He must have had just enough understanding that he allowed it to transform his entire life. That when God told him to get up and go, since Jesus was someone worth losing everything for to him, he went. So what about us? Is Jesus Jesus someone worth losing everything for? Is he someone worth giving our undivided, undistracted attention to? Is he someone worth listening to? Is he someone who deserves our immediate obedience? Is he someone we can trust enough to obey, even and when we don't understand, and even if it's costly? Is he someone worth getting to know and then getting to know more and more? Is he someone whose word has authority in our life? Is he someone who's worthy of having everything surrendered and submitted to? If the words from Jeremiah 31 alone are the only true things about him, I think it would still be enough to qualify him as someone worth giving everything for. The reason why he continues to bring his kingdom to the world today and uses people like us to do it is because he is someone worth losing everything for. The real detour in this story is not Joseph going to Egypt. It's Jesus leaving heaven and then going to the cross to defeat death once and for all. And this final qualifying act proves that he is not someone. He is the one who is worth losing everything for, the one who is worth giving everything for. 
He is alive and well and sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he is absolutely worthy of anything and everything he asks us to do. Let that be true in my life and in your life as well. In Jesus' name, amen.